1: Die like gray and staying the same. Deciding on my choices and keeping them the same. Completely misguided and I don't want to
2: hello listeners and welcome to ohio mysteries you're listening to a clip of gray a song by the youngstown group whiskey pilot i like that name whiskey pilot is our featured ohio musical artist tonight so hang out with us to the end of the podcast we'll tell you a little bit more about them how to find their music and let you listen to the entire song but right now throw another log on the fire campers let's dig up a new ohio mystery I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal.
3: Hi, everybody.
2: So, where are we going tonight, Paula?
3: Well, our story takes place in Northridge. That is a small, unincorporated area of Montgomery County. Do you know the capital of Montgomery County? No. That's Dayton. Oh, Dayton. Okay. so... So, we're just a little north of Dayton for this one. And it's January 13, 1973. It's a Saturday morning. And Gloria Buck starts the day making breakfast for her youngsters, six-year-old Tracy and five-year-old Scott. Tracy is a first grader at John Morrison Elementary School. Scott is a kindergartner there. Gloria is 26 years old. She met her husband, Jack, on a blind date. Now they're just a couple months shy of their seventh anniversary. But Jack's not home this weekend. He's off on a hunting trip with friends. The Bucks live in a small green bungalow on Arthur Avenue. After breakfast, Tracy and Scott go outside to play with Jennifer Brown. She's a 12-year-old friend who lives behind them in a house on Harding Avenue. Gloria tells Jennifer that she's trying to sell a television, and a man is coming to see it at noon. Could she hang around long enough to keep the kids entertained while she negotiates the deal? but Jennifer can't. Her dad promised to take her shopping and she needs to get home. So Jennifer leaves the Buckhouse at 11 a.m. But that reminds Gloria she still needs a babysitter for later. She needs to go to town on some errands. And Jennifer's 17-year-old sister, Patty, is usually available. So she gives Patty a call. Patty's not feeling very well this morning. She's spent most of the day so far in bed. So she lets Gloria know she can't babysit. But the two chat a bit longer. At one point, Patty even hears Gloria shouting to her two children who are still playing outside. Time to come in, she tells them. Company is coming. Gloria tells Patty about the man who's coming to see the television set. And a moment later, there's a knock on Gloria's door. I have to go, she tells Patty, cutting the conversation short. He's here. Well, the two hang up. Now we're at about noon. At 3.30 p.m., Patty's little sister Jennifer, she's back from her shopping trip, and she hurries over to the Buck home to show Gloria her new shoes. But nobody answers the door. That's funny, she thinks, because the TV is on. In fact, it's blaring. Oh. Jennifer lets herself into the house, and she calls out to the family, but no one answers. Jennifer walks further into the house checking each room. The last room she enters is Gloria's bedroom. And there they are. Gloria and Scott are lying on the floor, covered in blood. Gloria is nude. Tracy is lying on the bed, also black.
2: (sighs) Devastating.
3: Jennifer, she's frozen. She stands there a moment, then she turns and runs home, screaming all the way. She tells her big sister Patty about what she saw Patty doesn't believe her. She puts on her shoes and coat. She heads for the door. Don't go, Jennifer tells her big sister. Don't go. Jennifer wants to spare Patty from seeing the image that she'll never forget. But Patty heads over to the Bucks' home. She goes to the bedroom window, and she peers inside. And the scene is just as Jennifer had described it. Patty runs through the backyard to return home, and she calls the police. The coroner will determine Gloria had been stabbed multiple times through the heart and lungs. Her skull was fractured and she was shot in the head. The gun that was used belonged to her husband. It was a 22 caliber Ruger.
2: So it seems like she
3: pulled that weapon. She did. Pulled it well I I don't know if she pulled it. Somebody pulled it out of the holster that it was in. Yeah, okay. Her hands, they were covered in defensive wounds. She had put up a struggle, probably trying to fight for her children's lives, authorities say. If she was sexually assaulted, that fact has never been reported. Now, her children both died from stab wounds, one each to the neck and chest. Jack Buck returned from his hunting trip that afternoon and found his home surrounded by deputies. His first thought was that God must have gotten hit by a car while riding his tricycle in the street. He takes off running for the front door, but deputies stop him, they put him in a cruiser, and they inform him that his family has been slain. Mm-hmm. Jack was eliminated pretty quickly as a suspect. His alibi was rock solid, and he passed a lie detector test. But nine days later, police believed they had found their killer. On January 22, and a move that shocked everyone, police arrested Patty Brown and charged the babysitter with delinquency by murder. Mm-hmm. They are super tight-lipped about evidence and motive. Less than two weeks later, we're about 15 miles from where the Bucks lived and died, and the Dearth family wakes to start their day. It's January 25, 1973, The Durst live in a large brick ranch house on Diamond Mill Road in Brookville, Montgomery County. Dwayne and Odine have three kids. Maurice is away at Ohio Wesleyan University. 17-year-old Robert attends the local high school. And 13-year-old Linda Sue is midway through the 7th grade at Northmont Junior High. But there's no school today. It's a Monday, but classes have been canceled in honor of the funeral of former President Dwight D. Eisenhower. So Dad Dwayne heads off to work at K&F Metal Finishers. Mom Odine leaves to start her shift at the Farmers and Merchants Bank and left behind her Robert and Linda Sue. Robert has been promising his grandparents he'd prune some trees for them, so he leaves the house at 9.15 a.m. When he leaves Linda Sue, she's busy practicing her cornet, preparing for a school concert the next day. Linda is a pretty girl, pretty enough to stand out in a crowd. She loves animals and dotes on the family's pets. They have a Dalmatian and a cat. She's a Girl Scout and a member of the student council. She takes tap dancing lessons, and she teaches Sunday school classes to younger children. Her favorite song is Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. When the dearth parents left that morning, Linda was still dressed in her long nightgown standing in the hallway, and the cat was leaping at her feet each time she took a step and revealed her bare toes. Well, Robert, he's gone for a couple of hours, and he returns home around eleven forty-five a.m. His grandmother told him not to bother with the tree, so he went to visit a classmate instead. When he got back, he didn't go into the house. He went straight to the garage to work on his truck. But a little bit into his task, he noticed the kitchen door to the house was standing open. And that was odd. It is January, after all. He walked into the house and called out his sister's name. He heard a noise, a mumble. He moved into the living room and found her. Linda was nude, lying on the floor. And that's where she took her last breath. The coroner determines she was raped and shot in the head probably around 10.30 that morning. The Dalmatian had been locked in the basement. They found a shoe print on its stomach. Within a few weeks, it seemed to some that Linda wasn't the first life this killer had taken. Investigators do ballistic tests on cartridge cases recovered from both the Bucks and Dirth homes, and they match. Detectives will also quickly find something else in common with the two cases— The Dursts had a car for sale. The 1966 Chevrolet Bel Air sat in the family's front yard with a for sale sign on it. But it was also advertised in the Dayton edition of the Trading Post, the same publication where the Bucks had advertised their television set. Yet, even though the same gun was used at both crime scenes, and there's a strong suggestion that the killer may have found them both through a classified ad. Authorities tell reporters they don't think the murders are connected. Mm -hmm. Patty Brown, the babysitter jailed after the Buck murders, was in jail when Linda Durth was killed. Had been in jail for three days. And jail is where she's going to stay. Police insist the gun used in the second crime could have been discarded or stolen after the first crime, and used by a second killer. This
2: is just an excuse so they can keep her in
3: Absolutely. jail. I mean, these murders are frightening area families. I mean, the killings, they happened in broad daylight and where the victims should have felt the safest, in their very own homes. But police had someone in custody for the Bucks. And as for Linda Durth, Harlan Andrew, Chief Homicide Investigator for the Montgomery County Sheriff's Office, Seemed like he knew something when he told reporters everyone should just calm down. We don't have a maniac running loose in the county, he said. I can commiserate with the people in that community who have youngsters or wives who stay home when their husbands go to work, but all the evidence we have indicates this was an individual isolated circumstance. He's saying that of the dearth case. Well, There was very little revealed to the public about the indictment against the babysitter in the Buck case since it was in juvenile court. But in May of 1973, after a six-day closed hearing, a judge ruled Patty Brown not guilty. Good. And with that out of the way, Patty's defense attorney, public defender Richard Dodge, was free to unleash on the sheriff's office. Dodge accused the sheriff of botching the investigation. He said they never fingerprinted the holster from which the killer had taken the Bucks gun and that they completely ignored an eyewitness who had seen a car parked in the Bucks driveway that morning. He said Patty had been turned into a scapegoat because of public pressure to solve that crime quickly and that investigators pursued Patty with absolutely no evidence tying her to the crime. He also said Patty was mistreated during interrogations. Patty attended classes for mentally disabled children at Northridge and was so shaken during questioning that she once returned home suffering from hives that had swollen her eyes shut. The sheriff insisted they weren't hives, that her face was red from crying. Public defender Dodge said police had another strong suspect they were ignoring, a man already in jail, Arrested on a misdemeanor charge of making obscene phone calls. A man who had worked at a service station near the Buck home. Sheriff Kiter said he didn't have enough evidence to link that man to four murders. He also accused Dodge of improper behavior. No doubt, Dodge was doing his best to represent his client. Turns out, that guy who was in jail, Dodge had gone to his home gave the impression to the man's aunt that he was representing her nephew and managed to come away with some documents. Anyway, Dodge, he's calling for the sheriff's investigators to resign. The sheriff's is calling on the bar association to investigate Dodge for, you know, impersonating an attorney at that guy's home. Kiter also revealed why authorities had zeroed in on Patty in the first place. Turns out... 12-year-old sister Jennifer had told police her sister confessed to killing the Bucks. But Jennifer refused to testify at her sister's hearing, saying she misunderstood what her sister had told her. That she understood now her sister had said police were trying to say she killed them, not that she had killed them. After her release, Patty Brown shared her experience with reporters. She had spent 103 days in jail, including her 18th birthday. While incarcerated, she had the opportunity to make herself pants and a smock, which she called her going-home clothes. And when the judge released her, she ran into a room where her things were waiting, popped the buttons off as she tore her detention uniform off, and put on those going-home clothes. She said during her interrogations, deputies kept telling her that they had witnesses tying her to the crime. They gave me two pieces of bread and a slice of bologna and said, Patty, if you don't tell us the truth, this is what you're going to eat for the rest of your life, Patty said. Patty was given a lie detector test, but the tester said her emotional level was too high to get an accurate reading. So she was administered sodium pentothal. You don't hear about that very often. No, you don't. uh, They also call that the truth serum. And she passed. Anyway, in September of 1973, this is nine months after the slayings, an eight-inch-long butcher knife was found hidden in the attic of the Buck home in Northridge. Jack Buck had moved out of the home, and it was rented to a new family. That family had told authorities they had never gone into the attic before, but when they did, they found the wooden-handled knife wedged between two stacks of storm windows. It has not been revealed if the weapon was proved to be involved in the buck slangs. Now, in 1979, so this is six years later, the Montgomery Sheriff announced they were giving the cases another look, specifically in light of some other area killings that might have been related. They said they had a new suspect in mind, a person who suffered from a multi-personality disorder. They said they were trying to reach a criminal psychiatrist named Dr. Robert Mezer, who had helped solve the Boston Strangler case to see if he could help in this one. If anything came out of that, it hasn't been made public. Then in 1999, authorities said they had DNA available in the Buck and Dearth cases, but a test did not identify a killer. At that time, detectives revealed they had four people of interests, three of them who knew at least one of the families. But they also acknowledged the killer might have known any of the victims at all. The death of Linda Sue Duth took its toll on the family. Parents Duane and Odine tried to deal with the pain by adopting a seven-year-old girl, Rhonda, in 1974. But their grief strained the marriage, and they divorced in 1979. Duane and Odine both remarried, then both were widowed. And in 1987, when they came together for the first time in years for Rhonda's wedding, a spark reignited, and they remarried. Odine became active in a local group of parents who had lost their children to violent crime. And she talked about how difficult it was in the days, months, and years after Linda's death. Friends don't know how to approach you after a child is murdered, she said. Some friends told her to move on, to be thankful for her two sons. I don't care if you've got 50 kids and you lose one. Those other 49 don't take the place of the one that's gone, she said. Other friends simply faded from her life. You wouldn't believe the number of people who wouldn't come to our house anymore, she said. As for Patty and Jennifer Brown, a normal life was impossible. Patty moved to Florida to stay with a sister. Jennifer went to live with a brother in California. Their parents remained behind, alone, living in their Northridge home. Years later, when Jennifer was 38, she told reporters that investigators had put words in her mouth. Their whole case was built around me, she said. My God, I was a kid. The Browns filed a federal lawsuit against the sheriff's office for $1.35 million. In 1975, a jury awarded the Browns $250. That was for damages for clothing taken during the search. They rejected claims for damages for both Patty and Jennifer.
2: You know, when... You're talking about these investigators and sheriff departments, when they do a shoddy job like this, they become just as dangerous as a killer out there because they're missing opportunities to capture this person. Yeah,
3: the killer's still on the loose.
2: Yes, the killer's still on the loose is something that, you know, if you didn't rush through and do, a, like I said, a shoddy job, you could have this person.
3: Absolutely. But again,
2: you just become just as dangerous to the community as a killer.
3: Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, and I will say this, and I probably should note this more often when we do these old cases, especially when there are such clear indications that investigators were off the rails. We need to remember that we're talking about investigators from 1973. We don't want this to be a reflection on the Montgomery County Sheriff's Department today. No,
2: absolutely not, especially since it was so long ago. But this type of stuff still happens. And I'm sure it happened a lot more back then. It's kind of scary to think about how many people are rotting in jail that don't deserve to. They don't deserve to be
3: there. Right. Yeah, DNA is proving that to be true. How many people have been released because
2: of DNA? And poor Patty and Jennifer. Not only are they sent out of state to live with different relatives, a jury doesn't even recognize what they were put through by an incompetent investigation.
3: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I you know, ruin their lives to
2: an extent. Absolutely. You just can't unsee some of that stuff that's just burned into their memory forever. Right. Forever. Let's bring on board our armchair detective to talk this out.
3: With us tonight is Jana Falkner, an Ohio mysteries listener from Inglewood, that's in Montgomery County. Hi, Jana. Hi. Jana, you asked us to cover this story and I just got chills researching it. What a tragedy. Yes. Why has this case been on your mind?
0: I think that it's unsolved really bothers me. I definitely think that the police missed some really good opportunities to find who did this. The fact that she was so young, at 13, is she just, it chills me to the bone to think about. I have an 11 year old son. And to think about my 11-year-old son having something like this happen, I just don't, it just breaks my heart for her family.
3: She, in this case, you're talking about Linda Sue Durth. Yes. And you you are physically close to that location, right? I, I am. I
0: live in Inglewood. Her house is or was on a road that I drive to work to and from every day. So I drive past where she lived every day.
3: Is it even possible to drive by and not think of her?
0: No. no. <laughs> Once I learned about more about the case, uh, no, it is not. I And actually, after listening to your first episode where you mentioned that your brother would drive past and say, Hi, Maureen, to—that was
3: her name, right? It was Marion. Marion Brubaker. Marion. Yeah. yeah.
0: So whenever your brother would say, Hi, Marion, to Marion Brubaker, where she was last seen alive or where she was found— I kind of started have started to do the same thing, just sort of the, Hi, Linda, I haven't forgotten. You know, we won't forget you. And, you know, just kind of making a promise as a mother to this young girl myself that your life
3: is not forgotten. Oh, that is so touching. <laughs> yeah, the, Jana, did you know the connection between the the uh, dearth and the butt cases? I,
0: I did find out once I started to look into it a little bit more. I had seen a... TV news spot on our local one of our local news stations that covered her case and so I'd heard about it knew about it knew it was in the area and then just as my interest in true crime grew I started to kind of like hey there was one around here And I asked my mom about it because my mom grew up in the Northmont area. She moved away when, you know, after my sisters and I were born. And then my husband and I have moved back to this area. But I asked my mom, do you remember a little girl? And my mom did remember it. So she told me what she remembered. They were off school for, you know, she was like it was President's Day or something like that. And the school was closed, but normally it wouldn't have been closed. And so she gave me a little more like information of just what she had remembered so then I started to like, okay, I'm going to look this up and see if I can see what what more there is. So then when I looked up, you know, Googled her name, actually, I don't think I had her name at the time. I think I just Googled like something like 13 year old girl or something along those lines to yeah. try to find it. And then that's how I found her name and then got a little bit more information. And the first article I came across was an article from 2014 that did say that the guns, the gun in the Buck case and the dearth case were, were linked. So I, you know, and then that's where my interest grew, just to see like what what's going on. Why didn't they solve this? If this gun was linked, it seems like they should have had a, quite a bit of evidence then that they could have used to find who did this.
3: Yeah, Steve and I were just chatting about what, uh, like you said, the way you put it, the opportunities that were missed mm-hmm. because they settled on Patty Brown and didn't want to acknowledge that these cases were tied and. You know, the argument that, oh, you know, this gun could have been stolen by one killer, used in a crime, then discarded and picked up by another psychopath and used for a second crime of the very same type. I mean, is that a stretch? That is an absurd argument.
0: (laughs) When I read that, I actually, I mean, I had a physical, like, what reaction to that? I mean, that is... You know, I'm tr- I'm truly an Occam's razor kind of person that the simplest explanation is typically the correct one, and that is the farthest from the simplest explanation. That you know, you would have two murders create committed by two separate people with a discarded gun that just absolutely makes no sense at all. I mean, in my opinion, it, probably the person who com- who did this obviously did murder the bucks and found the gun. And that was what supplied for the next murder.
3: Right.
0: I talked to an investigator at Montgomery County Sheriff's office. Cause I called just to see if I could get any more information on it. I was pretty much stopped at the door, but I did get to have a really nice conversation with one of the detectives. Um, and he you know, he kind of talked to me a little bit about it.
3: Did he indicate that this is active? I mean, are they... He
0: did indicate that it is still an active case. They have tested the DNA was found with Linda Durst. They did not have any DNA. Well, I'm sorry. No, he would not tell me if they had DNA from the Buck case. He, I mean, he flat out said, I cannot answer that question. And then the other thing that he did tell me was that they do not have a full profile. So in looking at, you know, can something be done with familial DNA? He basically, he didn't really say whether or not they could, but he said that they don't have all of the markers, which if you've done any investigation or looked into any of familial DNA, they have to have quite a bit in order to really connect the dots on that. So unfortunately, that may not be the way that this is, this is solved. Yeah. But When I talked to the investigator about this, we talked about whether or not there were possible unsolved break-ins, robberies, home invasions from that same time period that could be connected to the trading post, which that obviously that connection was missed in the 70s, which would have been the prime opportunity to find that. Were there robberies happening of houses of people that had posted or or? advertise something for sale in the trading post that this person was committing because going to triple homicide on the very first attempt seems like such
3: a jump right I mean (laughs) what a risk you're taking it's like you show up maybe you think you're going to rape and kill a woman and now there's two other people in the house that sounds like a killer who's already you know
0: Experience, experience right this. and and Gloria Buck was actually on the phone with somebody and said I have to go the person for our TV is here right which is like stunning that they would then go after that babysitter
3: killer is at the door and he has seen my ad and then 10 days later later another family you know loses a family member when they had an ad in that trading post mm-hmm. and you know by hanging on to the patty brown theory And telling the community, calm down, this is an isolated case. You know, what a danger that was to the community then that you do have a lunatic running around.
0: Yeah, it really was. And, you know, it seems to be the case, if you look into any cold cases from the 70s, which, you know, we we all know the 70s and 80s is the the serial killer heyday. That is a common thread of missed opportunity of no, these are, these cases aren't connected. This is, you know, these are isolated incidents when they clearly aren't right. Um, And unfortunately we can't go back and, you know, snap out of it. Wake up you investigators and really do what you should be doing.
3: Wake up, go catch the (laughs) real guy. Why do you think they were hanging on to Patty Brown so desperately? I mean, do you think it was just pressure?
0: I I, I maybe I really cannot wrap my head around why an investigator would would come to the conclusion that a young girl would be capable of what was done to the
3: bucks. Yeah, let's review. So we've got 17 year old girl, some mental limitations, stabs three people, gets a gun from a holster, operates it correctly to shoot one. Undresses the woman so that she's nude when she's found and then pretends to be innocent for months, even under intense interrogation to the point of being able to pass questions under a truth serum who I mean, I would not be capable of this.
0: It's I know it's unbelievable. And it really I don't understand why they would continue forward with it. What in their minds made them think that they hadn't broke her yet? This is not a person who's probably capable of great deception. She's not the person that is going to be able to continuously lie with keeping the facts straight.
3: You know, you said that you had talked to this case about your mom and she remembered it. Do you get any indication that these cases are remembered well by the people in Montgomery County? or
0: I do not. I do not, which is another thing that really sort of bothers me. Um, I really, you know, this is definitely one that should never be forgotten.
2: Absolutely. And thanks to you for letting us know about this. There's, you know, thousands of people are going to listen to this and re- yeah, remember well, that's her. Yeah,
0: been- her her memory and not letting her die her memory die is part of why i've been contacting you know i've contacted you and i've contacted another podcast but that was basically it that this is a case that is not talked about and it's so there's so many different parts to it and the fact that it's connected to a triple homicide also it should be remembered it should be talked about and investigated
3: because of those significant facts I love that you went to the Sheriff's Department and did your (laughs) homework for us. (laughs) Thank you. I know actually
0: the investigators, when I talked to, when I finally got through to an investigator, he asked me what publication I was with and I said, I'm not a reporter and he was really stunned. (laughs) He said, what? I said, I'm, I'm just a person who just wants to know more about this case and would like to try to do some investigation on my own. And, and then he was shocked. So. You
3: know, it, probably because they're not used to it. But you know what? Uh, reporters have absolutely no rights beyond what the regular person has. And people don't realize that. When we go to a place and ask for information, the, you know, there's no law that says reporters get it and people don't and i when i was uh, at the beacon every uh you know probably every 10 years we would do this statewide it was sort of a sting and all these papers would get together and the ap would chore- choreograph it and we would pick the very same morning and we would all go out to a place and request something be made public but you couldn't tell them you were a reporter and the the whole point was try to get Agencies to recognize that the public had the right to information. So okay. you know, maybe I would go to a a superintendent's office, and I would just show up. And I'm not polish lies reporter. I'm just polish lies. And I would like to see the superintendent. You know what the superintendent spent on dinners in the last year. And it was f- so funny because sometimes they'd be like, "Well, who are you?" And I'd be like, "My name is Paula." well, why do you want this information? I'm just asking for it. And it's like, you don't have to give them a reason. You don't have to tell right. them who you are. It's just, it, this is public knowledge, just hand it over. And then we would all compare. And when then we would write stories about our experiences, you know, what people would do. And I remember once I had to go to Barberton, and actually I had to request exactly that kind of thing from the superintendent's office. And they, um, I wasn't covering Barberton at the time, so they didn't know who I was. And they like took me into an office, sat me down, asked if I wanted coffee. Okay, we're we're making those papers for you right now. We're printing them, and they were like so over the top. And I kept thinking, did somebody leak something? Because okay. usually don't act like that. I
2: believe there's what is it called, Sunshine Law in Ohio, oh, where Sunshine they law. cannot even ask you why you want it. They right. didn't need to do what Barberton did.
3: They did, uh-huh. they did, and in this case, they, they did it right. But then there were others where you know reporters had gone out and come back and said, "I don't have the document." They told me they don't have to give it to me. So I'm I'm glad that he you know took the time and, and answered your questions. Being an active case, I know there's a lot they're they're not going to share.
2: And if there's anybody right. out there who does know something, give uh, Montgomery County Sheriff's a call. The number is nine three seven two two five four three five seven.
0: Yeah. And and they did talk to me and I told him I really appreciated it. And, he, and basically, I just told him any question I ask, if you can't answer it, I'm OK with that. And so he answered quite a bit of my questions. And then, you know, there were a few that he said, well, I can't comment on that. And it was great, but it was really nice to be able to talk to somebody. And it did teach me that I do have the right to call and I can get information about any crime I want to ask about.
2: Absolutely. So, it's yeah. also it's also good that they do say that. I can't answer that. There there's some stuff you do need to keep, right? You know, mm-hmm. Just and, just to identify the killer. Absolutely. Right.
0: So I know there were sus. There are suspects that have been or are still. Pro- i From what he said, he led me to believe that they have a suspect that they are still somewhat investigating. I don't know the nature of it. I don't know anything beyond that, but it he did lead me to believe that there was somebody that they thought did this. yeah, but I they think, didn't have enough.
3: I think in that uh, news channel report that I saw, they said that they were actually they had four people on their list. So there were at least four people that they were still kind of considering people of interest. Mm-hmm. And so.
0: that could be where that DNA testing comes in, that they're just trying to get enough that they can use it in the way that will make a conviction stick. Yeah.
3: You know, it just occurred to me, I bet Gloria Buck was not raped because even though she was found nude, how would they have an excuse to arrest to Patty get a, Brown?
0: Yeah, I would assume, but he, that was one of the questions that he would not answer for me. Yeah. I I asked that. I had a list of questions and, um, I asked if she was raped or one of the children and, and he said, I can't answer.
3: Jana, you have been wonderful. Thank you so much for preparing and doing your homework and talking to the sheriff's department for, for us and our listeners. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for, for sharing this story with us.
0: You're welcome. Thank you for highlighting it on your show. I really appreciate it. And I really want to get more people interested in knowing about her case or both, both of them.
3: Well, I think you just did.
2: That's it for tonight, campers. Stop by our website, ohiomysteries.com for photos, links, news clippings, and more for this and every single Ohio mystery episode. You know what else you'll find on our website? Links to every musical artist that we've featured on every episode, so let's add another one tonight, Paula.
3: You bet. Whiskey Pilot is out of Youngstown, Ohio, and made up of Dominic Ferrari, Jack Mocker, David Ramsey, and Ben Ratner. They say they love to smile, laugh, and be around each other as much as possible, and having listened to their music, I'm going to guess a lot of people like to be around them, too. It's some great noise. Find Whiskey Pilot on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, like any of those social media sites, and you will be kept up to date on when and where they are playing. I found this little nugget about the boys on their Facebook page, and it really speaks to their colorful personalities, and it goes, formed in February of 2015, Whiskey Pilot has been running around and making people hop and clap ever since. Their truly boyish grins make them a lovable addition to any sort of social gathering. Dave is known for being a precious physical therapist and the band's most prized baby boy. Ben is a do-it-all coffee expert whose warm hugs could tame the wildest of beasts. Jack is a skeptic with ultra-senses. He struggles to cope with the ways of this dark world, but will win you over with his welcoming smile. Dom doesn't put his heart and soul into many things. He is known to carry a single dollar bill on his person at all times and can't be expected to pick up the tab. (laughs) So there you go.
2: Watch for their schedule and go see them. Just take enough money for your own drinks. (laughs) (laughs) This is a perfect time for a listen to that song we sampled at the very start of the podcast. Here's the full version of Gray. Give it a listen and we'll see you back here next week for another Ohio mystery.
1: I sleep in black So my senses can never tell where I'm at That makes it easy Or maybe that's what I fool myself to believe